Welcome back to Following Noah on a Stormlight Podcast. This week is episode 119, and we are doing chapters 65 through 68 of Rhythm of War. Elliot, how are you? I am I'm excellent. I'm feeling very Tolkien-ish today. I don't know. There's something in the air. Or the water. I don't know. There's something on your shirt. There's something on the wall behind you, certainly. Mm-hmm. Paul? Yeah, feeling very Tolkien-ish on our 11th episode here. <laughs> the last time I get to say that. I was going to say, we're so finally done with that. Say it. I have to say it. You can't not. Um, our, uh, for our 11th episode, I'm extremely excited. Uh, I think this is going to be a really fun one. It, it has a really fun mix of some kind of ridiculous stuff, like goofy stuff, honestly, and some really serious stuff that I cannot wait to dive in to with y'all. Sounds good. We do have quite the uh, array of different topics to talk about today. Paul, do you have two words? Yeah, and this, this, um, I'm to go on the we have serious stuff and not serious stuff to talk about. My two words are perspective and Plato. The the philosopher or the kid's toy? <laughs> the kid's toy. Yeah, play doh do with a D. Elliot? I have actually just one word because it's such a powerful word. It's taking up the awesomeness of two. And it also just happens to be on my mug today. I found this in the cupboard and wanted to use it. So for the, those of you watching on uh, YouTube, you can see that my mug says hope. Sounds good. Let's use these three words and talk about Rhythm of War. All right, Paul, talk to me about Plato. Okay, well, Plato is pretty quick and easy. Uh, we we see we get to really see Vinley kind of discovering her so, some one of her um, will shaper. If we take it, uh, will shaper abilities. Um, I don't remember the name of this surge, uh, but it's uh, I know it's it's shared with the stone words, right, where they can just shape stone like literally shape rock um basically to their will there's a lot of really neat stuff of like making rock like moldable and pliable in her hand and being able to throw it and it be solid rock like you know and and it was it was really neat to see and just uh something that caught my attention but there's not much depth there i just thought the descriptive words sounded like she was just kind of playing with play-doh you know um my other word is perspective, and this is what I'm most excited to talk to you all about because it was a good chapter, um, and that is in chapter 66 uh, with Dalinar and Teravangian talking. Yep. Um, all I'm going to say about it right now is I feel that this was reminiscent of a of a movie scene or book scene, you know, where the like basically the the scene where the villain you you talk to the villain the hero's talking to the villain and they explain their perspective or their their side of things and are saying basically I'm not wrong or what would you have done or or that kind of sentiment um 
and, and you get a glimpse into why they're doing what they're doing or why they've done what they do, they've done. But as the viewer, you're still like, I see what you're saying. Like, logically, I can put those pieces together, but you're still kind of wrong. Like, you're still just wrong. Uh, and I feel like that was um, what I saw here. But I think this was such a beautiful... I thought this was an excellent chapter and an excellent example of that kind of scene that you see in stories. It may be my favorite of that ever, actually. Like, I... Yeah, I, I like... I. I understood Teravangian's side, if that makes sense. Um, so anyways, I'm excited to dive into that with, into that with y'all as we go forward. Uh, but that is why I chose Perspective. It's what makes a compelling villain if they have a, mm -hmm. a even a sliver of ground that you can find in common with them. Yeah. Then, uh, cohesion is the surge that you were... Uh, thinking okay of. so will shape we haven't really talked about this but will shapers have cohesion and transportation okay so they can um jump in and out of the cognitive realm and they can shape stones elliot you know one word my my one word is hope and it centers around the same chapter you were just talking about paul chapter 66 with the dalnar teravangian discussion i think probably pretty clearly my favorite chapter of rhythm of war so far because because it does kind of revolve around this concept of hope versus despair i don't know if the word hope is actually used in the chapter but they're kind of talking around that concept. And I really want to dive into that. And then also another reason why I'm feeling very Tolkien tonight, I do want to make a few comparisons to another fairly well-known fantasy series. So we'll get, we'll get there when we get there. Sounds good. When this, I mean, when this episode goes live, Rings of Power will be days away. So we'll, wow. this is a timely, uh, yeah, anyway. Uh, Coincidence. So, yes. I am definitely excited for this episode. Chapter 65. Let's talk science before we talk philosophy, gentlemen. Um, so let's just get right to it. We'll come back to the beginning of the chapter in a second. But uh, they're talking about antimatter in this chapter. <laughs> they're talking about axi and negative axi and combining them for nuclear explosions who wants to who wants to take that one it's all you elliot you've got this one <laughs> oh okay okay so this was a super fun chapter because in, in some of the chapters just before this we were starting to learn a little bit more about the light but in this chapter navani actually gets to sit down and run some experiments which was, which was pretty cool. We watch her split the light into the different you know, color bands, just like a rainbow in the sky when it rains. Or if you take a, a prism, you can split normal light into the Roy G. Biv color spectrum. I was really fascinated by the differences she notes in the stormlight and the void light, how some of the color bands are like larger than the other ones. I I tried to do some some thought experiments on like 
why that would be or how you might explain that with our world physics, but I am not a physicist, so I have no idea why certain color bands or how certain color bands could be larger than than others. So it was it was pretty cool. I did want to draw a distinction here though. And Navani kind of touches on this too. There's a big difference between the light that is radiating off of like our spheres and the actual investiture itself. Right. Navani's kind of running these experiments on the light that's coming off of these things, not really the power itself. Right. So we're going to have to be a little careful as we like go forward and try and figure out what exactly you can do with stormlight, because what you can do with the light is probably going to be different than what you can actually do with the stormlight itself. So like she, she splits the light and then she actually tries to recombine it by putting it through another prism and it, it doesn't work. She can't get it to, to recombine. I think she's actually working with the stormlight and the life light, the tower light at that point. But that may not give us that whole answer that she's after, which is the can we combine Stormlight and Voidlight? Because combining the the essence, the power itself, that may act completely different than the actual electromagnetic radiance that's coming off of the light itself. Right. She Yeah. She describes it as two different elements. There's something that acts like light, and then there's something that acts like fluid. Which right. fills the, which fills the sphere and is held in the sphere and then radiates light. So, I think it's safe to say that the fluid in the sphere is the investiture, and then it's just radiating a certain flavor of light, based on what type of investiture it is. But there's lots of useful stuff we can do with this, right? If if we can, one we can learn about the, the investiture by studying the light that comes off it, but two. We could also use this as like a test. If we come, a, if if a character in the world, Navani comes across another light, like in the in the future, and she's not sure what it is, she could just you know do this little prism light splitting trick, and that might tell her exactly what it is. True. You can, yeah, you could figure out how many different types of light are in a sphere, any given mm-hmm. sphere. If it, you've got a bunch of different investors, yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah. Or Again, back to the whole is investiture from other shards on other planets behaving in similar ways. If we can go find other types of investiture that you could run the same test on and compare those results, that'd be fascinating as well. Yeah. So one thing I really wanted to, I guess this is kind of a theory. I don't know what to call this. Um, I believe it's Raboniel is the one who talks about Navani's asking, can we combine Stormlight and Voidlight? Is that possible? What what would that take? Kind of thing. And Raboniel is like, well, that would just lead to mass destruction. That would just lead to destruction, right? Because they're polar opposites. They can't combine and stuff like that. And my mind instantly was like, oh, no, I I bet they can. Like, I... I (laughs) Like, I just have this feeling that because we're being told that they can't combine and that will cause destruction, is that's what we're going to see happen. Right. Um, and I'm really curious. And see this, I mean, we talked about, I may, 
we may have talked about it in the last episode, but my mind definitely went to the dark sphere. I was like, is this the like first example of combined void light and stormlight or something along those lines? Because it hasn't matched any other description we've seen so far. And we kind of also learn why that's so important because um, is it later in the chapter that Raboniel says like basically if Stormlight and Voidlight can combine then that is like tangible evidence and proof that um, that the the singers, the listeners and the Alethi can like work together or can like be on the same side I guess um, and that they're not like polar opposites Um, maybe that's more grey or rocky than I'm describing it right now um but it's at least like a start. And so in my mind, I can see things piecing together of how things may be united in a sense down the line. Um, but yeah, that, the, the, that was that I had a lot of thoughts along those lines with this chapter. I, I'm really wrestling with some similar questions because there's there's kind of the symbolic side of that. Right, which is what you're talking about with if if void light and stormlight can col- can combine, then maybe our two different types of people groups can get along. But then there's also kind of the more practical side of that of like, yeah, but what does Raboniel actually want with this combined light? Like, what is? It seems like there's a motive there that's a little buried. She yep. keeps just saying, "Oh, for research. Oh, for." Making helping our people get along, yeah, totally. That that's it. I I think that there's a clear hint there that that there's something else at play. She she wants that mixture for something. So but I I don't really know what. Well, yeah, let, let's let's unpack this. So there's two different things you can get you can pull out of this chapter. One, stormlight and void light. If they could combine, that proves two things. A, they can get a different type of light as a mixture, like tower light uh, is for cult- is for life light and storm light. Two, they are not opposites, which is what Navani is arguing and Raboniel has thought for so long. But then the question then becomes, well, then if storm light and void light aren't opposite... What is the opposite of light? Which brings us back to which brings Navani's Navani like does a pretty good job of putting two and two together really quickly here. Of if I could successfully combine void light and stormlight, then there must be a we, we're starting to theorize. Well, then what is the opposite of stormlight? That becomes anti-light or something that pulls in light, which is the definition of the dark sphere that we've had. So, which would imply that Zeth had a, an anti-light, a, a dark matter sphere that of mass destruction. And somehow Gavilar had that to give to Zeth. Like we have never even had any implications, any foreshadowing or anything of anti-light or anti-matter coming into this like this is completely out of left field of what now now what are we talking about are we 
are we talking about like black holes and you know like what do Elliot, you want to talk about science for a little bit? I I do, I do, I do, because we just like I remember you telling us back in like early words of radiance, maybe late way of kings that up until that point, our story scope had been, you know, kind of here. We were talking about slaves on the battlefield and we were just getting like dipping our toes into, wait, this world has magic, like into those types of things. Right. You warned us that as we, as we went, like our scope, our lens was just going to widen and widen and widen and widen. And it absolutely did that all the way through Oathbringer, all the way through definitely like words of radiance, ends of word, end of word, words of radiance was pretty big, right? This moment right here is yet another widening of the lens. We, we've just gone from talking about like swords and shields on the battlefield to antimatter. Like, in our in our world in our world where we're at, scientists can only make antimatter in the Large Hadron Collider, which is a a sixteen mile long magnet, basically, where they accelerate particles to almost the speed of light, and then crash them into each other at the speed of light, and it creates antimatter for like the briefest second. Like that's the pinnacle of techno, like scientific discovery that our world is at. And now we discovered that, that that kind of stuff is in this world, that that's the potentially the stuff that's in our dark sphere that we saw in the prologue of way of Kings. And we've just been kind of carrying around with us this, this whole time, like mind blown at this point. And then she tells her scholars to go experiment with it. Hey, go, uh, go yeah. combine some light with this. See what happens. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. And when you start doing stuff like combining matter with antimatter, yeah, you get nuclear explosions pretty fast. That's how you do stuff like fission, which is what the the sun is doing continuously, you know, up in up in space. So I'm 100% convinced, maybe 99.5, that what happened in Navani's laboratory there is they attempted to like draw the antimatter light, anti-light, whatever we want to call it out. It combined with stormlight, created a nu- a little, a small nuclear explosion in that lab. That is a hundred 99.5% what happened there is they messed with some super powerful stuff and blew stuff up. And, and like the implications of this are absolutely terrifying. Remember, we started this story back with swords and shields on the battlefield. And now we're talking about the technology that allows you to have nuclear weapons, like hydrogen bombs and atom bombs and that kind of stuff. Yikes. Can I remind you guys? What Brandon Sanderson's answer to the question of what the most dangerous night radiant order is? Said he said Lightweaver, right? Light, yeah. Color. He said okay. Lightweaver. Are you beginning to understand the implications of that uh of that answer? 
Okay, so the the name right now seems to almost have a different meaning. If there's a potential for it, I assume influencing these spheres and potentially combining light, uh, because that could change a lot of things. So we know our light weavers to make fun little illusions and um, illuminations and stuff like that, impersonate people, but. That that could change a lot of things. I didn't think about that. That's a good point to bring up, Trevor. Could you imagine if a radiant tried to absorb that uh, that dark sphere? What would happen? Not good things, I imagine. Yeah. A a scarier thought, I suppose, is can you can you soul cast mm. this stuff? Now that's that's an interesting question though because stormlight is the power that allows you to do things like soul casting. But I'm assuming that you can't it it it'd be cheating, right? If you could soul cast rock into stormlight. Correct. You have to yeah, so there's there's 10 there's 10 essences and you can only soul cast from one essence to another. Right. Like you can only go from like smoke to stone or you know whatever air to blood or whatever okay okay um another thing that i'm thinking of so doesn't navani here i'm unsure someone is like either exposed to it may have been venley in the the chapter 67 does she like suck in some stormlight and it like if someone is near stormlight or sucks in storm or, sorry void light near void light or sucks in void light and it like affects the they can feel it affecting their emotion it's like it definitely happens in here I, I yes think. it's chapter sixty seven uh, I I okay. have it in my notes because I I did think that, that was interesting sense. was she okay. she absorbed some she breathed in some void light and yeah she specifically talks about how instead of the like call to action that Stormlight gives you, she felt her emotions inflamed or whatever you want. Yes, to yes, exactly. Um, so in my head, it still makes a lot of sense that if there is this void Stormlight mixture, if anyone is able to like utilize that, it would be Venley because she can use both Stormlight and Voidlight, I guess. I mean, maybe there's a lot of rules that we don't really know yet. I don't know if our normal radiance would be able to use that. I don't know if they can suck in normal void light. I'm assuming not, uh, or at least they intentionally don't do it, you know, because it's probably not good. Um, but in my head, it would like if Finley is able to utilize this, like there's probably like a level of power that we haven't seen, you know. So I I'm very curious to see what happens with our light. But one last thing, what is Raboniel's little teaser or or bait she uses for Navani on please work on this for me so I can I can know and I will do what if you find out a way to combine void light and stormlight what will I do She says she'd leave that they they'd pack everything up and they would leave she does and Navani doesn't believe that for a second like you know she's like all right yeah whatever you're going to say that just to motivate me but I don't I don't believe you. I do believe her. I think she's serious. I think with the knowledge that 
Voidlight and Stormlight are for sure not opposites. Raboniel then has the... Maybe the... The means of discovering and experimenting with anti-light. Because then that would then confirm that theory for her. And she values that way more than anything else. If she could have a weapon of of that caliber. Where... Where do you guys think Gavilar got a sphere? That's been my big question. I'm assuming that it is tied to the Heralds. Um, because we know that he met with at least two heralds, right? I think it was. I, I knew Kalak was one. Kalak, Kalak was one of them. Kalak and Nail, are, Nail. In, are in the room with him. Yes. And so I, I don't fully know anything past that. So I'm assuming it's tied to them. But someone on that like level of playing field, um, of like a high, a high level character, not um. Not some loser, you know. Mm. There was also some implications, or at least mentions, of the planet Braze. Yes, that that's where I'm guessing that there was almost an implication. Maybe there was that Gavilar's been there. I'm not and sure so... if the implication is he was there himself. The implication certainly was he retrieved the spheres from there. So that's that's what I my brain is latched onto is associating his source of knowledge and stuff he shouldn't have with Braze. I I would go that far as well. I was just trying to fish it out of you guys to make sure I wasn't spoiling anything. Um, where I, do the where do the fused get banished during desolations? To Braze, right? Mm-hmm. So assuming. Gavilar, I I would assume that Raboniel could get access to whatever Gavilar had access to. Is that too bold of an assumption? I would think not. I actually... My brain went a different way with some theories on this, if you're done with, with yep. yours. Yep. That's kind of similar, but but kind of different. I'm wondering if, you know, I'm 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 still stuck on the question. Why does why does Rabonio want Storm Void, Void Storm, whatever we want to call it, mm-hmm. light so bad? You're saying maybe that unlocks some sort of power for her back on Braze, or in combination with Anti Light somehow. I'm wondering if it is similar to Tower Light and the sibling. I wonder if Raboniel sees the sibling and maybe this sibling is able to be your, the tower Eurythiru, which is incredibly powerful because of, of tower light right. that it has. What if Raboniel, because Raboniel is a fused, right? So Raboniel is a spren inhabiting or a, a spirit yeah. inhabiting the body of, of a, of a singer. What if she's trying to, like level up to that level. What if she what if she thinks, hey, if I can get my own combination light or something. Can I go somewhere else and create 
a new Urethiru? Can I create a, a bastion of defense for my kind and my people that is the equivalent of Urethiru, thus giving us the power to you know stand up against the humans and the radians who have Urethiru that we can't take down? Okay. That's, that's where I was going with it. But that's kind of maybe not quite in line with what we know about her. That seems like a fairly defensive move. Like, right. hey, I want this power so I can go protect my own people. We know Rabonio's a little more crazy than that. So nu- nuclear weapons, that, that might be a little more in line with let, what she's after. Yeah. Let, okay. Let me build off of this real quick. So let's combine honor and cultivation, right? Naturally, that's going to be fairly defensive. Oh, yeah. Let's combine honor and odium. She may be assuming that whatever that makes is offensive because of the nature of odium. So she may just be after whatever that combines into and not assuming that it's defensive and assuming it's offensive. I mean, we we just talked a second ago about what the void light does when Venli in, inhales it. If we combine stormlight, which is action, excuse me, action oriented, like the power, the enabling power to do stuff, and void light, or no, sorry, life light cultivation is like growth and or perhaps protection. We get urethiru. But if then if we com- if we combine action and emotions, that does sound a little scary. Actually, if you have like heightened emotions and this desire to take action and do stuff, that does sound rather offensive to me. Yeah, I like that. Find out. Anything else for sixty-five? Oh man, we're only one chapter into this. Mm-hmm. All right. Six, covers a lot of ground. 66. Philosophy time. Take the time to take the science hat off and take the philosophy hat on. All right. Um, actually, real quick, let's let, let's bridge them successfully. Dalinar, um, to open this chapter, he's playing with his new uh, yarn ability. He closes his eyes and puts his hand on this little soldier dude right next to him. And he's like, oh, I can see it now. And it's all these little cables connecting him to everybody he knows, Roshar itself, time. Like, it's it just connecting him to all of his realities in in his mind. And he's musing with the Stormfather like, oh, this is, this is useful, right? And the Stormfather's like, I'm, I don't know, dude. Like, don't look at me. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> so, and then he, the Stormfather gives him the parable of like the two, like the two cloths. Like you and your brother take a, a red cloth and an orange cloth, and you walk opposite directions. And then in four days, you both look at the cloth, and when you find the orange one, you know at that exact moment that your brother has the red cloth. Great. What What do you do with that information? So the the implications, I, I don't know the implications of that. Well, let me fill in your thought here because the sentence right after what you were talking about reads, reads as follows. The connection exists, 
but isn't something that can necessarily be exploited, at least not by most people. A bondsmith, though, and it ends in like an ellipsis there, just kind of trails off. Like, that's potentially very interesting. If Dalinar can not only see connections between people and things, but if he can manipulate them or create them or destroy them, that might have some pretty far-reaching implications. Let me bridge this back now to the previous chapter of Mass Destruction. Where are the Radiants from? Where are the humans from? Uh, another place? Ashen. The Burning Planet. Okay? The Stormfather tells Dalinar the Bondsmith's abilities were inhibited because of what happened before. So what you are toying with, I don't know about because I wasn't allowed to know about. Okay? I wonder if a bondsmith got a hold of Antilite and it accidentally blew up the planet. Oh dear. We, we've theorized in the past already that Dalinar may be even more important well, let me rephrase that the bondsmith may be even more important than we think he is. He's talked about, you know, participation on a interstellar level. Dalinar's starting to have thoughts on that, on that scope. Yeah, this is this is more of that, even of can he can he start to do stuff that might destroy a planet? More more scary thoughts. He he is in a duel for the planet. Let's hope he doesn't accidentally kill it while he's doing that. Paul, any thoughts before we talk about Tervangian? I definitely think there's going to be something where Dalinar can manipulate people's like reality or combine them or things like that. Um, I see what you're saying with the anti-light thing. It's hard for me to imagine that really being a thing that comes into fruition. It might be like, maybe we'll find out at some point that's how the previous planet was destroyed. But I feel like it was something like literally with the power of the, the, the bondsmiths um not like that in addition to this like antimatter explosive i guess yeah um unless maybe drawing in that light and doing your bondsmith powers or something since you you just try to combine everything and it combusts who who knows i don't know uh you're like unite everything because you're driven by all the emotion and stuff and you just go for it <laughs> Who knows? I, I don't. I don't really know. Um, I think but... <laughs> they. I think they had odium with them at the time, and honor was on Roshar at the time, if I'm not mistaken. Mm, well, that would. I mean, that could explain things, perhaps. Is that why odium doesn't? Well, is that why odium doesn't have like a dawn or a bondsmith 
thing is because it was like he had it, but now we need to we need to pull back from that a little bit with our uh, bondsmiths. Maybe so. The but... way I understand it, and we, you guys can correct us in the comments if you'd like to. Um, the way I understand it is surge binding started on Ashen or even before that, and then hat got rules once it hit Roshar. So the Knights Radiant weren't a thing on on Ashen. It was just people messing around with Stormlight. And then once Rosh- you came to Roshar, you got a spren that helped you figure out some rules to your powers. Man. I wonder what life would have been like on Ashen. People are just... <laughs> I, I guess you could just use all the surges or something. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? That that's a big rabbit trail, but no no further thoughts on on that part. I I feel like it's a, a bit too ambiguous for me right now to really pick anything yet. Yeah. All right. Dalinar finally goes and visits Teravangian. I feel like we've been waiting for this conversation since the beginning of this book, where Teravangian's like, "I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna betray him." I'm going to do it. I did it. Nothing happened. Okay. So they finally talk. And I'll I'll let you get one of you guys lead it if you'd like to. I'm going to share my stuff first. And then after, I'm really curious to see the comparisons that Elliot drew. Because um, I know this was kind of where we had some Tolkien or Lord of the Rings crossover, didn't we? Yeah. I'm excited to hear about that. Um for me, I said a little bit at the beginning of this episode of how this this seems like I'm watching it unfold where my protagonist is talking to the antagonist. Now let's zoom in here and uh, to, to just these two as a protagonist and antagonist, let's say. Um, and Delinar is like, basically, what have you done? And he's like, Delinar, like, what would you what would you do? in my shoes what would you have done if you were given this like cosmic understanding for a day and you saw there was no way to save everyone there was no way to overcome this evil there's no way to overcome odium but there was a way to save some there was a way to save this city this one city um what would you have done? Would you have just let everyone die, or would you save this one city? And Dalinar, and, and honestly, while Teravangian was talking, while he was giving that, I was like, I, I didn't fully know what to think, because I was like, yeah, like, with those options, like, it seems like what he did was right, you know? Um, and I was wondering how Dalinar could or would respond to this, and the way he did was so well, and I can't quote it, or anything. We I don't know if we plan to read that at all or not, but basically he's saying how there is hope and the best part of it all, what really like sent me over the moon with this, what what made it so hands down awesome to me was how De- Delinar gets really mad at Teravangian, right? He he's furious, but he they he he basically vows or, or stands to prove him wrong and Teravangian is like yes please please prove me wrong please save everyone like uh, I want 
I want to be so wrong. Like we we do see some like Teravangian is kind of our epitome character where the ends justify the means or, or somewhat with that. Like if some people are saved, then it doesn't matter who dies. Right. We're going to save as much as we can. Um, and Delinar is saying that's not how we're going to do things. Um, and he goes to say that when he's not going to kill Teravangian, but when they fight or take over or defeat Odium, that Teravangian is going to be there. And he's going to get to watch and basically see that he's wrong. And on that day, they're going to get to embrace and like be reunited as friends, essentially. And I thought that was... Me saying it right now does not like like if you are listening to this podcast episode, if you're listening to me right now and you have read this chapter, go reread it. Go go read it again and look at the dialogue because I thought it was so well done and so good. And I am paraphrasing and not doing it justice in the slightest. So definitely go reread it. I plan to do so because uh, I thought it was so, so good. I've only listened to the audiobook, but I'm definitely this is a chapter that I really want to sit down and like actually read it. I, I think you're doing it a pretty good pretty good justice, Paul. You're you're hitting on exactly the things that that stood out to me. And I, I did want to pull it up and, and read it for you. So I, I do have it in front of me, the the rebuttal that Dalinar gives to to Teravangian. Teravangian's case, just like you stated, is I've seen the future, basically. I know what happens. I'm just doing whatever I can to minimize our losses. Downer's response is this. Here's what he says. That's the problem with your worldview, Teravangian. You gave up before the battle started. You think you're smart enough to know the future, but I repeat, nobody knows for certain what will happen. And and that right there, that is the hope that I was talking about. He doesn't use the term hope, but in in my mind, the th- there's a couple different ways you can define hope. But the the way that I like the most is is similar a lot in a lot of ways to faith. Hope is a hope is not just a oh I hope it turns out well. There's a better version of there's a different version of that hope that is no I believe that it will turn out well. And I think that's that's kind of what Dalinar is, is is touching on here in that you cannot know for certain what's going to happen. And so you have to cling to that hope of we're gonna we're gonna fight this, we're gonna do what we know is right and believe that there's a chance, even when you think there's not gonna be one. And I when I read this, I immediately thought of Lord of the Rings, because that concept of of hope is one of the biggest themes throughout the Lord of the Rings, and it's my favorite one by far. And I the the quote I had to I wanted to compare it to is said by Gandalf in the the Council of Elrond. I'm going to spoil a little bit of Lord of the Rings, by the way, here. So if you have not read Lord of the Rings and don't want to get spoiled on that, uh, skip ahead a, a little ways in the podcast here. But hopefully you've you've at least seen the movies for Lord of the Rings. In the Council of Elrond, 
Gandalf is laying out the plan of, hey, our only hope here is we have to take the ring to Mount Mount Doom and and destroy it. And the, the response he gets back from the different members of the council is, oh, that's that's folly. That is that is the path of despair. And Gandalf says this. It is not despair, for despair is only for those who see the end beyond all doubt. We do not. The, the implication there being the hint, you, you can't resign yourself to despair unless you know 100% that it's going to fail. If there's even a chance, there's some hope there. And that's the, the difference between Dalinar and, and Teravangian here is Dalinar's clinging to that hope, that belief that there's something we can do and it's our job to, to try and find it. Whereas Teravangian has embraced the despair and said, no, I've seen the future. We're going to die. I've already given up before the battle's even started. I, I have a few more thoughts, actually, but I've been talking for a long time. Any of you guys want to weigh in on the, the Lord of the Rings parallels? Do you see that at all, or, or am I crazy? No, I definitely see it. And I, I did my high school senior thesis on Tolkien and his... Uh, coining of the phrase eucatastrophe and you how you need to present yourselves with the the best op or the the best chance and have have faith have hope that you will you will see it through if you are on the on the right side on the on on the good guys so dalinar believes that he is still on the good guys, even after the revelation that we received at the end of Oathbringer, that he does not believe that that discounts all of his good, honorable people that he knows and is willing to fight for. So even if your side is not perfect, you still, you still fight for what you know and fight for what you believe in. Paul? I, uh, I won't talk too long because I absolutely love the themes of hope. And Elliot, you did a great job of kind of specifying that, like, there's the, oh, yeah, I hope it goes well. Like, yeah, um, I, I hope it, I hope it works out. And the, like, hope as belief, like, I'm hoping in this, like, to come to fruition. Like, I, I, and, and putting your, like, faith or putting, like your trust in that um is is really beautiful and i i think it's so cool i think the comparison with gandalf there and showing kind of that wisdom and that like honestly just just better perspective i i i mean a lot of people i think would describe it as kind of optimistic or optimistic to a fault is something that i think of where it's like you're being unrealistic like i understand your positive outlook but that maybe that's unrealistic, and I guess seeing that in a really like strong, like staunch way here with Dalinar, with Gandalf, um, of like no, like if if we're going to give in to despair right now, like it's over, and and, and it, only other thing that I was thinking of is kind of this comparison between. 
between Tervangian and Dalinar is I feel like De- uh, Tervangian's plan he feels is complete. He he even says like basically I've done everything I need to do. You could kill me if you want. Like I I don't really care. I'm here. I'm done. He he like played his cards to survive. Where Dalinar's like playing his cards to live, like to to like grow and move forward or i almost said survive and thrive but i feel like that's too like <laughs> cliche or something but basically it, it, it's it's approaching and same problem the same like mass destruction in two different ways which is really beautiful and i wasn't expecting a chapter to like really hit me like this with where we are in the book but this this is my favorite probably my favorite chapter so far in this book yeah i agree before you took it back elliot um, this is Dalinar has the mindset of show up at the Black Gate because Frodo still might be alive. That is that that's the mindset here. What is yeah. what is Dalinar's Black Gate? What what's Dalinar's plan? Is it this? test of champions or is that yeah. that's like the thing right that's the, like his in to to affect odium the contest of champions is his shot right he has a lot of people around him telling him that it is futile he has teravangian telling him it is futile he has renarin telling him that it's not hopeless but he is misguided with his um, with his contest, he has Hoyd telling him that he needs to iron iron things out and get this get this going if he wants to have a chance, or else it, it won't work out. So, based on this chapter, Dalinar will do it anyway. Yeah, the cast of characters that are like not against Dalinar, but like advising against or, or trying to set realistic expectations let's say of what might happen is really hard to argue with and and i mentioned before that i thought this chapter was such a good example of this like perspectives of the bad guy scene because like logically like logically with the what is presented in this chapter it was hard for me to be on dalinar's side still like like he like I'm not saying anything that Teravangian has done was right, but, like, I thought of it, like, if I was in his shoes, right, and I'm shown this, like, you can either let everyone die, or you can save some people. Like, I would choose the save some people, like, if I were in his shoes there, you know? And he he tells Delinar that, and, and it's really hard to argue with. That's hard to, like to not view Dalinar as being, like, reckless or ridiculous here, I, you know? And so it was just really difficult. And, and I think there's only one challenge out of that, and it's the one Dalinar takes, is it was your interpretation of what you saw that was flawed, not... Yes. Like, he challenges what Cultivation showed him. Are you sure that there was absolutely zero chance and are you 100% positive with what you saw that there was no other way? And Teravangian does not answer that, which is the important part. Mm-hmm. And that's likely because we saw Teravangian realize that there's a chink in the plan and that chink is Renarin. 
he knows, I don't know if I quite want to call it a flaw, but there's a, there's an unknown in his master diagram. And Renarin has even told us a little bit about this, the simply the fact that he is also able to perceive the future throws a wrench into it because he can know the future that impacts what the future can become. Right. And so the future is always changing. Teravangian may have seen a lot of possibilities, but I think what Dalinar is calling out here is, are you a hundred percent sure you've seen every single one or is there a future out there where we can defeat the evil? And holding on to that hope that there is that is what the kind of the path of Dalinar is walking here. One one more Lord of the Rings reference for you, and then we can we can set that aside and go back to, to this story. But the the other part of Lord of the Rings that I immediately thought about in this scene was also the character of Denethor. Later on in the story, in, in Return of the King, we get to one of the epic battle scenes at the end where the armies of Sauron are, are attacking Minas Tirith. And Denethor is the, the steward of Gondor. He's, he's not the king, but he's in charge. But he has also sort of kind of seen the future. He has, he has a palantir that, uh, yeah, did I mention spoilers? This is spoilers for Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Denethor has a palantir where he has seen the might of the enemy. Denethor knows how strong Sauron is. And because of that, he's calling, he, he's given up. He's, he's all the way at the point of despair where he's ready to kill himself and the life of his son because he can't stand up against the, against the evil that's coming. He thinks they're all going to die. And he, this is what Denethor says. And, and remember what Dalinar and Teravangian are talking about, because in my mind, it, it's quite similar. This is Denethor speaking. Nay, I have seen more than thou knowest, gray fool. That, that's Gandalf. For thy hope is but ignorance. Go then in labor and healing. Go forth and fight. Vanity. For a little space you may triumph on the field for a day. But against the power that now arises, there is no victory. And he goes on a little, he rambles a little bit more. He's a little crazy. And then Gandalf responds with, such counsels will make the enemy's victory certain indeed. And I thought, I thought, I see a lot of similarities there. Denethor, Denethor has given up. He even refers to resistance as vanity, which is exactly what Teravangian does yep. in this scene as well. Teravangian basically calls out Dalinar and says, no, it's a matter of pride for you at this point. You can't give up because it's your pride at stake. And I think that's kind of what Denethor is calling, trying to throw in Gandalf's face as well. Is go, go ahead, resist the enemy. It's all just for vanity. But Dalinar is clinging, again, back to that, that hope of there, there is a possible chance that doing the right thing can prevail us in the end. I don't know, really, really powerful moment. And a, it made me remember one of my favorite parts of one of my favorite stories, Lord of the Rings. So yeah, such a good section of here of Rhythm of War. Yeah. Before we, before we do move on, I like my, my one thing to add to that is 
no, I'm not really adding. I'm just affirming that. Like, I think that is a spot on um, comparison there of like those two sides of you know. It's even it's even like Denethor has this like I guess sort of this knowledge that no one else has of the strength of the enemy, and so he goes very like doomsday and is trying to to stop he's like what are y'all doing there's no point in fighting like it's just over sorry guys i i I wish it weren't you know um and yeah and and gandalf kind of has that like wisdom that while there's of the kind of the understanding that while there's a fighting chance we're going to fight for that chance you know like and and it's it's really inspiring and also my favorite story so I'm very glad that you brought those quotes in. Now, that all being said, I think there is, there's a few differences. It's not like these are are mirror of of each other in these stories. One of the biggest ones is, unlike Denethor, who just completely gives up, Denethor is like, well, we can't fight this. I guess I'll go kill myself. Teravangian takes a very different approach. Teravangian says, we can't fight this, so I'm going to make the tough decision that no one else can make to save the few and sacrifice the many. And that's kind of the philosophical debate that we get into here. Is that an okay decision to make? Dalinar's kind of walking the road of, I'm going to try to save everyone, even if that maybe means everyone dies. Whereas Teravangian is saying, I'm going to, what I think is for sure, save the few, knowingly sacrifice the many, but justify that with that's better than possibly everyone dying is it better to have a five percent chance of saving 100 percent of people or 100 percent chance to save five percent of people exactly yeah but this is one of those things that like i said teravanian's perspective like logically makes sense why he made the decision he did and i literally think if i was in either of their shoes i would have made their decision which is just like really really a really good balance there i'm like if i was teravangian and i was given this like level of brilliance and also like brought one-on-one basically before odium like and saw this like i would i would save what i could like i would you know be panicking and save what i could um and and if i'm dalinar and i know that there's a chance against this like i i feel like i would take that chance like it's it's just really it, that is really well written. That that is just really well done. Um, there of of how both sides are really believable, like very like believable options. You know, it did dawn on me in this chapter that Dalinar has spoken. Well, there's an asterisk here, but Dalinar has spoken face to face with all three shards on Roshar. With the asterisk of it, honor was a tape recording. But uh, <laughs> Teravangian has two of the three, two. Mm-hmm. and he's and he's missing the honor tapes. So, or at least we think he is. Um, so yeah, it, I just had that. You know, we knew that, but that was my realization, kind of dawning of like, oh, yeah, he talks to all three shards fairly regularly as compared to everybody else. Anything else for this chapter? 
Teravangian probably knows that Zeth is here. Let's see, that's the one other thing. Teravangian, like, spins around and, like, stares at Dalinar real quick, and Zeth is in, um, in the shack to protect Dalinar, and Zeth, like, almost pulls his sword. His reaction time is, like, freaky fast, and Teravangian, like, looks at him real quick. He knows it's Zeth now. Which I'm not sure if I should be worried about or not. But I yes, we I noticed that too. Right now. Yeah. Yeah, I do see what you mean, but. Prediction time before we go to 67 and 68. Is Teravangian making out of making it out of book four? Alive? Alive. Yeah. Unless unless the contest of champions happens at the end of this book, maybe. But yeah, I think he is. Okay. If he dies, it's because he. If he dies, it's either like Moash kills him, somehow. Okay. Or he like, try like Pulls ends his own life or something. Yeah, yeah. Like like goes crazy ends his own life or something. What about Zeth? Zeth isn't gonna kill him unless Delinar says so. I don't think he will. I mean, maybe there's suicide by Zeth where Teravangian tries to attack Dalinar knowing that Zeth is going to take him out. I mean, that's a way to do that, I suppose. Yeah. But you both are confident he'll make it out of this book? Yeah, I don't think Zeth is going to, like, break protocol or break his, like, oaths to to kill Teravangian, like, against Dalinar's wishes, if that makes sense. Yeah, I th- I, th- I think Teravangian's fine. I think he's safe. I I don't think there's aside from maybe your your average Alethi soldier who will know that Teravangian betrayed them all. I, I I could see him maybe somebody like that trying to assassinate him, but I don't think Dalinar wants to kill him. Yeah, I don't think Dalinar... Zeth wants to kill him. I don't think I don't think oh, I don't know. That there's enough people out there that are actually after Teravangian. Yeah. So I'm, I think I'm in Paul's camp. I, I don't see why Teravangian would die. Yeah. Delinar wants the restoration there. And that was like, maybe my favorite part of the chapter was that how he wants him to be there on the date, like watch, watch him be proved wrong. Yeah. And I absolutely agree with you with the Delinar part. I don't agree with Elliot about Zeth. I think if Zeth had the opportunity, he would absolutely kill it. Teravangian because of what Teravangian put Zeth through. I mean, I thought about that. I could definitely see that. Um, I don't think he'd break protocol. And like in my head, Zeth is like so sick of the killing part that like he wants to have nothing to do with Teravangian. Like he would obviously hate being around Teravangian. Uh, but I feel like he wouldn't even want to resolve things naturally through violence. I mean, I know he's very upset. Like, he's gone through so much trauma because of Teravangian. Um, but I feel like his urge to kill Teravangian isn't high enough to break his oaths. I'm, Unless Nightblood I'm, does something crazy. I, just as a aside before you say that, Elliot... Um, I would love to hear the Nightblood Zeth internal dialogue in this scene. Well, just, Dalinar and Teravangian are going back and forth, and Nightblood's just like, kill him. Kill him. 
Yeah, yeah. True. Come on, kill him. I bet I bet Nightblood hates Terravangian. Like literally is like please (laughs) you should draw me. I don't know. Terravangian was fairly bloodthirsty and Nightblood is rather bloodthirsty. Maybe Nightblood is all for that kind of thing. I I don't know. Commiserates. I Yeah. I'm I'm not the Zeth expert on the on the podcast, so I'm I'm not quite sure on this, but I I get the impression that Zeth hates himself more than he might hate Teravangian. Okay. I I don't see a a revenge motive in Zeth. But I could easily be wrong. I, I just haven't picked up on that. So I don't know. I think Teravangian is safe, but it's not a super confident thing. Just a mildly confident. He's pretty old. He could just true all over. That, you know? that is true. <laughs> Has a particularly bad day, and his body forgets to pump his heart. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sixty-seven and sixty-eight. We give a Venli present-day chapter, and then an Eshenai flashback chapter. Uh, Venli is playing with her new radiant power. Well, they're not new. With her old radiant powers that she's finally beginning to be brave enough to experiment with. And then Eshenai in the flashback chapter, she just achieved Warform. Ellie, you look confused. I am I am confused because I just read something you put in the uh, the outline for the first time that I apparently missed before. I, I'm skipping ahead a, a second, but uh, in chapter sixty seven here, you say we get a rebs a reference to capsule. Yes, we do. Okay, did I did I miss something completely? Sorry if I, I just derailed it. wherever you were going with Venley. Well, we don't get a reference to capsule. I get to reference capsule, which. I can probably count the amount of, after he's dead, the amount of times I get to talk about Capsule maybe on one hand, so I'm a little bit excited. Um, so, let, let's talk about Venli's powers first, and then we'll go back to Capsule. Um, she gets to warp stone with her with her powers. While she's warping stone, what does she hear? Really she important, them. what does she hear? She hears them singing. Is that right? Or she hears singing? She hears the stone singing, but then she also hears what is just described as a pure tone. Yes. A pure tone of Roshar. Now, let's go back to Capsule. Do you guys remember his plate, his sand plate? He would play oh, yeah. a, he would play a note and he would like, you know, play an F. And then it's like, look, it's Colinar. And then play another note. And it's whatever, Thalen City. And people and he presents that to Yasna as proof that the Almighty exists. And Yasna um pushes back on him and says just because there's patterns in nature does not mean there is a, a a force behind it. You get patterns in in like ocean waves all the time, and that's just random, presumably. 
But I think we have conclusive evidence that the Dawn singers are creating cities via the and shaping stone via these tones. They hear a pure tone, the ones that Capsule is Capsule comes across these pure tones and re, can reconstruct them on a on a on a plate, and the Dawn singers have heard these pure tones of Roshar and shape stone based on what they hear into these same shapes. Are you guys tracking with me? Yes. Sorry, capsule reference. That, that's all. That's yeah. That's really neat. I didn't remember that with capsule. I I didn't recall it till you just uh, you just said it. I was I was trying to look it up. There was a funny name for that phenomenon of the oh, the, yeah. the sound with the sand. I I think I found it. It's cymatics or something cymatics, like that. Yep. Anyway, yeah, blast from the past there, quite a ways back. But no, that's that's super cool to align that with these pure tones that Venley is hearing. This isn't the first time she's heard it either. This has actually come up a couple times, but it was only just briefly mentioned. The only one I can remember specifically is when she's talking to Relaine. When she sees Relaine like for the first time, she she hears this tone like overriding all the the normal rhythms. But I think there's been other times too where which, where it's been referenced. It's just been too small for us to have time to to talk about it on the podcast so tying that back to like creation of roshar that's super cool yeah there's another this is certainly a rereader um find but somebody in our discord i can put it on screen to properly credit you once i find it but somebody in our discord brought up that shalon Back in the Way of Kings, here's a pure tone when Yasna soul casts in front of her for the first time. It it well, it may not be huh. the first time. It it's either it's either when she takes the the stone out of the out, out of the hallway for King Teravangian and still pretending she has a soul caster, or it's when she saves them from the bandits and fires them all um it's one it, i don't remember which scene it is but shallan it's a it's a one-liner shallan like there's everything goes quiet and then there's just a pure like note and then it fades huh that's cool i have no conclusion to make about this but it's probably important should I give you a teaser for next week? Yes. Always. Oh, wait. Am I... Hold on. Hold that thought. Talk about something else. Uh, I have a theory on the epigraphs, finally. Uh, no. Um, the next chapter that we're about to read... Chapter 69 for next week. The title of that chapter is called Pure Tones of Roshar. Ooh. Ah. There's a teaser for you. Time to raffo. 
All right, uh, go ahead with your uh, theory. Yes, theory. Switching gears, not related to the tones, I don't think. I've been stumped by the epigraphs so far in this part. It's claiming to be from the rhythm of war, which I thought was going to be like sheet music. Yeah. Or something I thought like so that, too. or lyrics to a song or something like that. That doesn't appear to be a case anymore. Specifically, the epigraph for chapter 67, the one we're kind of talking about now, specifically says, this notebook was a dream we shared, which is itself a beautiful thing, proof of the truth of my intent, even if the project was ultimately doomed. I read that, and an idea popped into my head as to what this could be. What if the author of this is Raboniel and the recipient is Navani in the future? Like a letter? Yes. Like at some point here, the singers, the fused, everybody, they're going to leave or they're either defeated or, or something. And Raboniel leaves behind this letter for Navani basically explaining a lot of what she was trying to do and this note in particular seems to try and claim like hey I had honorable intentions with what I was doing even if it was the project was ultimately doomed which is what it says I think there's a lot of other possible explanations for what this could be talking about but it that seemed to maybe fit here so I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to run with this theory for at least a little while. I'm tracking. The only maybe biggest bit there that's not really explained is why is it called Rhythm of War? Hmm. That I don't know. I can't quite explain that. Why isn't it not just letter from Rabonial or something? Cuz it's got to start with ROW. Because words of reading start with W-O-R-R. Well, okay, sure. Yes, <laughs> yes. Fair. Anyway, that was that was my other thing from chapter 67. I don't have a ton to add. I, I'm very curious about these epigraphs. Our epigraphs have been seemingly really descriptive or, or really like... And it's been the case for a while. Our epigraphs grown more have grown in scale along with our story growing in scale, you know? Um so I don't have much to add. The only thing and this is a a small thing. It's 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 very prevalent in my head, but everybody I talk to does not care about this. Ever since I've read the Way of Kings for the first time. I have really, really, really wanted to know what happened to the Shattered Plains and how they became shattered. And while we're on the topic of shaping the earth via stones or via music and stuff, there's a whole there's a whole storyline of Shallan in Words of Radiance of how the Shattered Plains are symmetrical. Um, 
and you can you can map out the middle based on half of your if you can mirror the, the yeah. north half and the south half you can figure out where the where the center is is how she is how she figures out where to go um so there's there's some sort of connection there between dawn cities um you know symmetrical dawn cities and symmetrical shattered planes somehow weaponizing a will shaper's power um to destroy what was uh the city at the center of the shattered planes that's the theory in my head at least um and breaking the rock instead of shaping the rock anyway i have always wanted to know what shattered the the shattered planes and like for for years i've wondered this and every time i ask people they're like i have not given that two two thoughts yeah, because then it would just be planes. And the the plane planes. Less cool. Yeah, <laughs> just just the the normal, un unscathed planes. Just it's rather plain, isn't it? You know. All right, and chapter sixty-eight, we have Eshenai, who. Uh, Maybe accidentally steals her mom's friend. Oops. <laughs> that awkward moment when. When you go into the storm with your mom and uh, steal your friend. Happens. Does. Pesky kids. Yeah. Yeah. She, she, I takes her mom into the storm. She wants her mom to take war form because she thinks it'll heal her. Uh, it doesn't appear that that happens. Her, Eshenai's mom kind of just vanishes in the storm and we don't really like she tells Eshenai, hey I need to go take shelter but Eshenai is too busy um taking war form which by the way while she's taking war form what does she hear pure tones a pure tone of what of honor it says specifically of a pure tone honor. of honor she hears a pure tone of honor for war form fascinating i have no idea right. what that means but fascinating it's I, the rhythm of war but just a tone the tone the tone <laughs> of war yeah it's i was intrigued by that too because it seems like elsewhere they're referred to as the tones of roshar which i would assume is our cultivation's tones exactly but somehow she knows it's an honor tone. And honor right. is dead at this point, so... Right. Fascinating. I didn't have too much else on this on this chapter, unless you guys did. She, It seems that she successfully is speeding to unite the listeners ahead of the War on the Shattered Plains, which will be happening at the beginning of the Way Kings, so... Just just another small thing I noticed in this chapter. There, there's kind of a, a throwaway mention in here where Eshenai is thinking about the the previous conflicts they've had between the two, like multiple families when they've gone to war before with each other. And the, the comment she makes in her head is something along the lines of some of some of the conflicts with other families have been extremely deadly. Sometimes up to a dozen people have died. Yeah. <laughs> I I chuckle for a second, like, wait, 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 wait. A dozen? You think a dozen people is a is a massacre? That's a 
death on the scale of a, of a war. And again, and then but, juxtapose that with the war they get into against the Alethi and how the Alethi slaughter them in droves. And, and then escalate that even further to what we talked about at the very beginning of this episode, where we're potentially on the, the brink of modern, like us on earth, modern day warfare type things of nuclear bombs and destruction of planets. Like that's, that's the, how far kind of the, their society has come. It, it was just another glimpse into the, here's how ancient the the singer or the the listener culture is is yeah. that's the level they think on and and we've come so much farther than that the, in the the journey we've been on their conflicts are very ritualistic at this point yeah yep yeah good stuff like even if you have the ability to beat this other family with your shard bearer you're not going to use your shard bearer because those are for shell hunts and we only use we don't use shards against other listeners yeah very lots of important rules and all of those are thrown out the window against the alethi and to to kind of wrap up that that thought for the episode if if that's how far we've come in our three and a half books so far if if the scope of this story keeps going if it keeps zooming out like where are we going to end where where We've gone from, I've said this too many times already, but we've gone from swords and shields to antimatter. Where are we going next? What is going to be at the end of this book and potentially in the next book? This could get crazy, all. I actually thought about this briefly earlier in our episode whenever we talked about Braze. I thought... Uh, it's Zeth's book, and I keep thinking that he's going to be like a key to defeating Odium, just on the, the topic of like sheer strength. Like He seems like the strongest fighter that we have, especially with Nightblood, right? Yep. So I'm wondering... I, I've, I've mentioned this. I have this little prediction. This will be my little crazy prediction to, to wrap up our episode or, or stuff we're talking about here, but I've had the prediction that Gavilar is going to be our perspective character for our prologue or for for the prologue of book five. I do not know. I do not want to know. That's one of the biggest things I don't want spoiled because uh, I think it's super exciting to like start reading and then figure out who it is and then being like, oh, what am I going to learn? All this stuff. It's so cool. But I think it's going to be Gavilar. I think we might find out a way that he got this sphere from Braze or how he got there or how, how people go back and forth or things with that and I'm wondering if we will end up with our part of our story being on Braze in book 5 I think that's the way it could go up in scale still what I remember being halfway through Rhythm of War for the first time and realizing exact right where you guys are and realizing exactly how much Gavilar had at his disposal. I was really, really concerned that we would get Stormlight 5 prologue and the big reveal is Gavilar's alive. 
and he's been in the in the shadows the whole time. That would be something. That would be the major something. I was I was afraid he was a radiant back then because if you remember, Zeth doesn't actually kill him. He falls from a balcony, gets impaled by a, a wooden plank, and bleeds out. I was really scared. Right, right about where you guys are, I had the thought of, oh wait, <laughs> what if Gavilar had his spheres? What happened to the other spheres that he had? Where did they go? That's that's a thought I had right where you guys are. I mean, we've seen someone survive getting stabbed in the chest before. It's it doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility, I guess. Yeah. All right. Let us uh, reconvene next week. Next week we end part three of Rhythm of War with interludes following the week after that. So let's keep reading and uh, we can talk then. Thanks for joining me, Paul and Elliot. Let's do it. Uh, night, night. <laughs> <laughs>